Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. In my left hand, I hold a copy of T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And that is the poem I will be discussing today. It was first published in June 1915 and is actually T.S. Eliot's first professionally published poem. Now, many of you will have heard of T.S. Eliot, I'm sure, and perhaps the first poem that springs to mind when Eliot is mentioned is his epic The Wasteland. And some people use the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, today's poem, as a sort of gateway drug to the wasteland, a shorter, perhaps slightly more accessible poem, which operates as a ramp to the great epic. I think that is misusing the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. It's brilliant in its own right, and If I had to be pushed on it, I'd probably love it more than The Wasteland. It's like, if you ever watched any of those old 70s sitcoms, like On the Bosses, when they became successful, they would do a film version, which would be like 90 minutes of On the Bosses. Par example, Holiday on the Bosses, which was one of those films. And they were never as good as the original 25-minute sitcoms. And I have to say, On the Bosses um, didn't give a lot to live up to in many ways, but they were padded out a bit and uh, they didn't have the tight precision of the original. So I think in many ways The Wasteland is holiday on the bosses to the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock's original 25-minute sitcom on the bosses. That is an analogy which halfway through I thought, can I really enforce this? I can, and I have. The poem, I can't keep calling it the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I'm just going to call it Prufrock. Although before I do that um, pruning, as you see, I... Before I do that, let's just look at that title. The love song of those first four words. You think, oh, this is going to be high romance. The love song of, it's going to be lyrical. It's going to be beautiful. And then you get J. Alfred Prufrock. It sounds the most normal, like normal with a capital A. N name, Prufrock. You can hear prude and a frock coat, the uh, maybe the uniform of the dull office worker, the frock of the clergyman. It's got an Anglican kind of sound to it. This doesn't sound like a man, Prufrock, who should have a love song. What's going on there? Well, I, what I think is going on is we're going to talk about a dull, slightly balding, slightly thin man who you would pass on the street and not even notice. And we're going to look at his inner life and find that there is great romance and great lyricism. And maybe that's true of many of those ordinary men and women we pass in the street. The poem begins with a longish quote in the original Italian 
from Dante's Inferno. One thing about Eliot, if you read Eliot or if you go on to read him after this, is he loves a literary quote. He's not a man afraid of wearing his brain on his sleeve, T.S. Eliot. So this quote, and don't think for one second I'm going to read it in the original Italian. What I am going to do, however, is reach for my translation of Dante's Inferno by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the American poet who you may know for the uh, the Song of Hiawatha. If you don't, it's all right. We'll probably cover it at some point on Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This is what the quote would be if it wasn't in the original Italian And uh, I'll give you a setting here is that Dante and um, his friend uh, Virgil, the uh, famous Roman poet, are wandering through hell and uh, they approach someone and basically ask him who he is and what his story is. This is what this character, this smouldering individual in hell replies, if I believe that my reply were made to one to who the world would e'er return. So if I thought I was giving the answer to that question to someone to the world would e'er return, who was going to go back from hell to the world, if I thought that's who I was talking to, back to the uh, back to the poem this flame without more flickering would stand still so i'd shut up and stay silent if i thought you could ever tell anyone else what my answer is going to be but inasmuch as never from this depth did anyone return if i hear true without the fear of infamy i answer so look no one leaves hell so i can tell you anything because I don't have to worry you're going to go back to the world and tell people because you ain't never going back. It's a bit like when the villain in a James Bond film tells James Bond the whole plot that he's got, everything he's planning, because he knows that when the candle burns through the rope, the axe will drop down and slice James Bond in two. Ah, or does he? So, um, Yes, it's a great opening reference because it suggests that we're going to get some truth, some raw honesty here, because we are being spoken to as someone who will not go back to the world and repeat this tale. Now, is Eliot suggesting that we are resident in hell along with the speaker? I I don't think... That is what he's saying. I think that Eliot is addressing the speaker. Prufrock is addressing his love song to us because we are from a different world. We are not from his poetical world. We do not inhabit the places that Prufrock inhabits. So it's a sort of joke early on that Prufrock is saying that this figure is peering in from outside his world and stepping in to find out what's going on, and that's us entering the poem. That is what I think is going on here. And I think the love song 
of uh, of proof rock is a love song for us the reader he's going to open up to us he's going to reveal his romantic inner life which he wouldn't normally reveal amidst the bourgeois trappings of the world that he inhabits and so he can speak honestly to us because we are outsiders and we can't tell anyone because in this case we are not characters of the poem. So he can look out and speak to us and say, this is the truth of who I am and no one I work with or no one who I date or no one who knows me will know about my spectacular inner life. Proofrock is basically talking to camera. That is what I think is going on. That's what I think the Dante quote encourages us to think. We're going to get honesty and truth, but only because we are the reader. We come peering in from a different world. Okay, the first three lines are absolutely spectacular. I would say the first stanza of Proof Rock, as I'm going to call it from now on, the first stanza of Proof Rock is one of the great stanzas in all poetry. Here we go. I'm going to give you the first three lines. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Wow. That is, man, that is from simile heaven. I don't care if Dante speaks to us from hell. Let us go then, you and I. It's a phrase I use in my everyday life all the time if I'm going anywhere with anyone. Okay, then let us go then, you and I. And I think it's because it really grabs you. He turns to us, the reader, and says, come on then, I've got someone I can speak to openly and I am really going to show you who I am. And I'm going to get out my best poetic technique straight away. I'm a bit overexcited that I've got this person to speak to who will understand me. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky. We've got rhyme. He's already showing off. The evening is spread out against the sky. And, you know, sometimes you see the sky in layers like that. What does it look like? Like a patient etherized upon a table. Oh, my goodness. What a simile. Who was expecting that, if you don't know this poem? Like a patient etherized, comatose, knocked out, lying on a table. I mean, it's just shocking and fantastic. And what an opening it is. He continues. I'm going to carry on to the end of this fantastic stanza. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Actually, I'm not going to go to the end of the stanza. I'm going to stop there for a second. 
Let's just look at those bits. So we've got the image of the of the evening spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. And it feels like those rhymes are taking us forward on this journey through these streets. And we, of course, he chucks in a couplet, a sort of 18th century style, iambic pentameter, heroic couplet of restless nights in one night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Ten syllables to the barn and it feels so neat and perfect and it's lovely to say the rhythm is ordered and controlled and this is Prufrock, the speaker, saying, I can really do this poetry thing. Listen to me doing it. Come with me through these certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats. You know, when you're walking out at night past pubs and clubs and there's a sense of that muttering of voices you can't hear going on, of life in a sort of darker underworld Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent. So streets like a tedious argument. So they're seemingly dull and going on and repeating themselves of insidious intent. There's just a hint of trap, a hint of danger in the argument and in the streets to lead you to an overwhelming question. That's where he's taking us. The you is, is you, the reader. To lead you to an overwhelming question, dot, 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 it says. And what do we think? What is it? What is the question then, this overwhelming question you're leading us to? Next line. Oh, do not ask, what is it? So we fell into his trap there. When he says to lead you to an overwhelming question, of course, your only thought is, what is he? But listen, he ends on another fabulous rhyme. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. I think when he says, oh, do not ask, what is it? The question... I think there's a bigger point there maybe about poetry. Don't let's get too tied down to meaning this early on. Let us go and make our visit. Let's enjoy. Let's enjoy this poem that I'm producing, this thing that I've got in my secret life. And then the next stanza is two lines. It's a very famous and I have to say of course my usual qualifier I know that not much in poetry genuinely qualifies as famous the way Taylor Swift would qualify as famous but in the poetry world this is very famous two lines in the room the women come and go talking of Michelangelo and you're thinking oh so where what happened we were walking down the street with Prufrock he told us about an overwhelming question and then told us not to ask what it was. And now suddenly, in the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. I think in the room, not in a room, in the room already sounds like an exclusive place. 
In the room, the women come and go. There's a sort of a um, not fully committed sense here. They come and go. They're not maybe paying full attention. I think one could argue, and I hate to bring this up, that Elliot made the characters in the room women to suggest that there might be um, some sort of not fully committed, slightly gossipy reason for attending. I know it's bad, but, you know, different times, 1915, worse things were happening. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Michelangelo, of course, not just a great artist, but a great religious artist, important, serious, seems here to have become reduced to tittle-tattle of sort of arty types in the room. Now, this doesn't seem to be a place that we'd find this proof-rock figure who has to hide his art away and can only tell us because we're not going to go and tell anyone else in his world. Well, I think one of Eliot's favourite techniques is this fragmentariness. It's been likened, um, I can't remember who by, to channel surfing. You know, when you're clicking through the telly and you're watching a programme about someone finding a good home for a rescue dog and then you go over to a, a western movie and then you click on and it's a pop video and it's all only connected by the medium it finds itself in. He does that a lot and here I think what's going to happen and I think it'll become clearer later but I think he's saying Yes, there is a world where you can talk about art openly. You can be upfront about your secret passions because they don't have to be secret. You can talk about Michelangelo the way one might talk about doing the shopping. But also, in that world, in the room, it can be reduced. It can be trivialised. And that's not what the speaker, not what proof rock is going to do. He might not be of that elite, arty world, but he really honestly cares, and he can write great poetry. And one of the things I love about this poem is Elliot is not afraid of making the speaker proof rock say, I'm really good at poetry, and then using some really brilliant poetry as an example. In the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. We'll come back to that. You'll see why it's repeated in that exact form a bit later in the poem. I think suggesting that whatever goes on in the world, the room of the elite goes on as before, untouched by the lowly proof rocks of the world. Next stanza. Brace yourself for a metaphor. The yellow fog that robs its back upon the window panes. The yellow smoke that robs its muzzle on the window panes. Licked its tongue into the corners of the evening. Lingered upon the pools that stand in drains. Let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys. Slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap 
and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. I think we could um, call this metaphor fog-ass cat in simple terms, but just listen to those opening two lines. The yellow fog that robs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that robs its muzzle on the window panes. And you think that's a pretty cheap form of rhyming, isn't it, to just say the same phrase twice? I think Proofrock is giving us a little insight into his notebook. He's showing us the crossings out. I think his first line was going to be the yellow fog that robs its back upon the window panes. And then we get the yellow smoke that robs its muzzle on the window panes. You see how he's shortened upon to on so that it works better with muzzle. We're getting a little bit of a uh, insight into the poetic creative forces of Proofrock. What I'm saying here, you may have guessed, is I think Proofrock is a poet. And he's a poet who's an ordinary man on the surface, so he cannot be upfront about his poetry. And I think he meets someone from another world, i.e. the reader, and he is absolutely exhilarated to be able to show them how good he is at this secret art of poetry. Now, I don't know if that's a standard view of Proofrock. It's not one I've actually come across, but that is what it screams to me. Okay, the yellow fog that robs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that robs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening lingered upon the pools that stand in drains the way cats and fog do, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys. I used to go out in fogs when fog was a big thing when I was a kid. And um, when you got back home and blew your nose into your handkerchief, it was black, black from the soot that just hung in the air in that fog. Let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, now it's very into cat territory, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. Fog curls around the house, just the, the way a cat curls when it lies down, and they both fall asleep. He's really upfronted. I can do metaphors, by the way, as well. Get a load of this cat fog thing. And then in the next stanza, he refers back to it brazenly. And indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, robbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time. There will be time. He seems to be saying, I've got time here to luxuriate in my poeticism. I can really enjoy that cat metaphor. And he refers back to it. Indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. He's patting himself on the back for that metaphor and enjoying it and making sure we didn't miss it. He's just pointing it out to us. I've got to tell you, when he says, and indeed there will be time, and then 
a couple of lines later, there will be time, there will be time. He mentions time a lot in this stanza. There's a lot of repetition in Proof Rock. It reminds me, this stanza, of, I'm sure you know, um, Ecclesiastes 3 from the Old Testament. Um, You will when I read it to you, which talks about how there's a time for everything. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. It's got that feel to it. And there's a lot of echoes, as there always is in Eliot, of other works. We've already had Dante. This feels very Old Testament, uh, Ecclesiastes in particular. And we're going to get a bit of Shakespeare. There is some Andrew Marvell in there. As I say, brain on the sleeve. There is another thing in the... um, There is a reading of this poem by Eliot himself, which is worth listening to, I think, because I think it's kind of hilarious, where he says... And indeed, there will be time. And then he says, there will be time. There will be time. And he keeps, there's something very funny. I I know it's um, disrespectful to a poetic great. But um, when I listen to him reading his own stuff, I do sometimes laugh out loud, most notably in The Wasteland, when he talks about uh, a fortune teller, Madame Sesostris, famous clairvoyant, Always kills me. I may have even mentioned that before on the podcast, but so what? It's a cracker. I'm going to go back to this uh, fourth stanza. And indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. So there will be time, it seems, to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. And I think now we're back into Prufrock's everyday life. To prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. That sounds like a very phony existence doesn't he? And also they're just faces. They don't seem to be people. There will be time to murder and create. That sounds like poetic creation to me, to murder and create the crossing out, the writing, the inventing, the crossing out, murder and create, murder and create. And time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. So we were in his everyday world when he was preparing a face to meet the faces that you meet. Then there was a moment of his creativity when he murders and creates that poetic process. And then we're back into the everyday and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. It sounds, doesn't it, all the works and days of hands. And again, they're not people, they're just hands now. They were faces 
And now they've become hands, hands that lift and drop a question on your plate, like your inbox, like people putting stuff in there on your desk. Lift and drop a question on your plate. So it's the mundane, repetitive nature of work. Time for you and time for me. It seems, however, there is still time for the speaker, Proofrock, and the reader, us. And we are not just a face or a hand. We seem to be more than that. And time yet for a hundred indecisions Throughout this poem, Proofrock is crippled by indecision. We see that over and over again. And for a hundred visions and revisions, that to me is a perfect summary, that one line of the poetic process. And time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions or revisions, I suppose we could say, if we wanted to emphasise the point. I think we're talking about visions, that part of creating poetry or art, which comes from some sort of magical place, from the muses, inspiration, from the soul, however you want to describe it, that mystical element, visions and revisions, the nuts and bolts, hard work of making a poem, of making a work of art, having to get down to it and really give it some effort. And it ends this, and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of toast and tea, always undermining proof rock, back to normal. Yet it all sounded a bit grand, didn't it? I complain about my everyday mundanity, I celebrate my visions, my creativity, but after all of it, toast and tea, that's what I like. And then again in the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. I'm rushing a little, but it's a long poem, I'm going to have to cut some bits. I know it's wrong, but hey... I don't know if you've ever read Diary of a Nobody. There's a character called Mr. Pooter in it, who is the classic guy in a frock coat who does um, a pretty boring job, but he's very pompous and proud about it. And he's a sort of classic grey man. And um, although he is accidentally very funny, there's a line which I may be slightly misquoting, but was so funny to live with me forever. And I probably haven't read Diary of a Nobody for some 20 years. But at one point he says, I am not a rich man, but I would pay five shillings to discover the identity of the author of an insulting Christmas card which I received this morning. <laughs> OK, and that is Proofrock's got a bit of the Mr. Pooter about him. He's a bit of a grey man in the office, like them, the, the dad in Mary Poppins in the movie, that sort of uh, stripy trouser, bowler hat, straight character. Here comes the stanza. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Now I think it is that 
ordinary man thinking, should I be writing poetry? Should I be talking to this strange outsider, this reader? Should I let them be seeing my secret inner world? Time to turn back and descend the stair. He's lost his nerve with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare? Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. That's a lot of stuff and it's also got some of my favourite poetic ingredients, parentheses, which I need to identify. So, indeed there will be time. He's talked about how he's got time to luxuriate in this poetic art, to create long cat fog metaphors. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? He's losing his nerve. Remember, this is kind of Mr. Ordinary. Time to turn back and descend the stair. There's a sense of someone saying, maybe I should go back to my ordinary life. That's where I belong, not in this grander place. Like he's been a bit frightened by the reoccurrence of those two lines in the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. It showed him his place a bit. He doesn't belong in the room. And listen to this. Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. That simple vanity of the ordinary man. Oh, my God, I've got a bald spot. And then we go into parentheses. They will say... How his hair is growing thin, close parentheses. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin. My necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. So he's talking about the uniform now of the company man. But why, um, why brackets? Well, I think it's because it's them. It's other people from his world, not not the reader's world, and the things he imagines they say about him, how his hair is growing thin. Yes, them, them, those people who talk about him behind his back, the sort of sneering types who write insulting Christmas cards. And then he talks about his clothes, and it's slightly pathetic because there's a couple of words in this that suggest strength but in all the wrong ways. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin. Firmly. That's the only firmness we seem to be getting out of this character. My necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. So firmness and assertion are just coming from his clothes, the way his collar is mounted, the way his tie pin is fitted, he's buttoned up, restrained, trussed up by social norms. More brackets, they will say, but how his arms and legs are thin, close brackets, that's those voices again that he imagines. And now it's the really, the most mundane insecurities of what people say about your bald patch and your thin 
limbs. But then the temptation again, do I dare disturb the universe? And I love the idea of this dull man being able to disturb the universe, even in a tiny way. In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. The terrible uncertainty of all this, the nagging indecision. Right, I'm going to jump a little and jump in on one of my uh, favourite bits. Shall I say, I think he's talking about what he might put in the poem now. Shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows. And he's bravely gone into blank verse here, the poetry, the rhyme has stopped. And he's talking about what would be a, a fabulous image I might use. Men so lonely, they lean out of their windows seeking some sort of contact with the world outside. And I love the audacity of Eliot to use a beautiful image like this as something to consider in a nuts and bolts kind of way. Oh, shall I use that really brilliant image? And here it is, and it absolutely stands on its own as a brilliant poetic image, but I'll talk about it as if it's something I'm looking at in my notebook and it might get her and it might not. But I say it again, shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watch the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows. For me, it's a desperately melancholy image. And he's just holding it up as, I could, I could try this, I suppose, see how this goes. And then he gets even more cosmic. I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. And so we flick the channel again and now we're in uh, Attenborough territory and suddenly he's talking about some what sounds to me like some primal existence. I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. It feels like he's trying out, what can I put in this poem? There's that bit about the lonely guys with the pipes. That's a good bit. Or I could, I could get even riskier and make myself the ragged claws and do that internal rhyme of claws and flaws. And I could go that way. There is some evidence that uh, Eliot did compose like this, collecting good bits, poetic ideas and expressions from his notes and then finding places for them in poems he wrote later on. OK, I'm going to jump in halfway through a stanza here. Again, I'm cutting, but really, you know, I don't, these are, they're always too long, my podcasts. I realise that. I get carried away. I can't really apologise for that. If I wasn't the sort of guy who got carried away by poetry, I wouldn't be doing the damn thing. Here's the next chunk I want to read to you because it's brilliant. Listen to this first rhyming couplet here. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? 
But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, brackets, grown slightly bald, he can't let that go, close brackets, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and he is no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. So, should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? It's a funny rhyme, just like he uses elsewhere in this poem, one of those rhymes that makes you smile. And also the idea that uh, whatever this moment is, whatever this crisis is, he's fueling his uh, combat with it with tea and cakes and ices. Sugar and tannin is what Prufrock uses to get him fired up for battle. And I think the thing with Prufrock is, in some ways, he is a tragic hero, a, a, a man out of place in a mundane world, a, a creative, poetic mind. But he just won't have that. He can't allow himself to uh, be portrayed as a full-on tragic hero. So we get the moment in this uh, in this stanza where he compares himself with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of course, who was another voice in the wilderness and who ended up being beheaded and his, uh, his head delivered on a plate. So we get, but though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, the classic activities of the prophet, though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, open brackets, grown slightly bald, close brackets, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and he is no great matter. So even when he allows himself to be seen as a as a tragic hero, to be seen as a prophet, to be seen as a voice in the wilderness, of course, the thing he notices when his head comes in on a platter is that ball patch. Again, very classic proof rock undermining. I compared him before with Mr. Pooter from Diary of a Nobody. The great difference between these two, although they are both sort of representatives of grey man on the outside, is that Pooter thinks he's much better and much more important than he actually is. And that's what makes him so comic. Proofrock thinks he's less than he is. But we, the reader, this person who he has engaged with, realise that he is special, that he is much, much more. And that, although there is comedy in this poem, that creates tragedy. I think to think you're better than you are is a comic uh, thing. And to think you're less than you are is a tragic thing. That's what I get from the... Pooter Proofrock comparison. I am no prophet and he is no great matter. So he has sort of again landed flat 
I'm not a prophet. I know I did that John the Baptist image, but I'm not a prophet. And here's no great matter. This stuff is not so good. Once again, his confidence slumps. But no sooner said than that lively inner life seems to crackle back into action. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. So there's times when I think, oh, I can do it. I am special. I have got something. A lot of people listening to this podcast will know that feeling. And they'll also recognise this uh, talking yourself out of it, cold feet moment that Proof Rock is experiencing at this stage. I've seen the moment of my greatness flicker and I've seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And what's going on there, I think a footman is a servant, the eternal footman, all those people who are in a way less socially, certainly less intellectually, less emotionally than proof rock, who snicker who laugh at him, even as they help him on with his coat, because he's this silly little balding, thin-legged man. They have no idea what's going on inside. And in short, I was afraid. He doesn't have the courage to pursue this flicker of greatness. I'm jumping ahead, but on the same theme. No, I am not Prince Hamlet nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant, Lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious and meticulous, full of high sentence but a bit obtuse. So he's saying, this is who I really am. I'm not the great artist, am I? I'm not Prince Hamlet, who does his fantastic soliloquies, like, for example, to be or not to be, which might well be referred to in that line. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord. He's saying, no, I'm really uh, a secondary character in life's theatre. I'm not like Hamlet the the prince, the artist, the poet. I'm an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress. And the, the line break there is on do. So I'm an attendant lord, one that will do. In other words, he'll do. You know what I mean? He's all right. Will do to swell a progress. To swell a progress, I mean to move the plot along a bit. You know, I'm, I'm a good device. Start a scene or two. Advise the prince. No doubt an easy tool. Deferential. So togging at the forelock. Not, not wanting to cause too much of a stir. Back to the poem. Glad to be of use. Politic, cautious and meticulous full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse. So wordy, but um, a bit lacking in understanding, if the truth be told. Cautious and meticulous, that sounds like that man at the office that we feel proof rock is in his morning coat. At times, indeed, almost ridiculous. 
almost at times the full. So we say, not only am I a bit boring and a bit secondary and a bit middle management, but at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost at times the full. Now that feels worse than being an attendant lord, but it isn't in the world of Shakespeare. The full, and it's got a capital F, makes you automatically think of the fool in King Lear, who is the cleverest bloke in the play and who is brave and speaks out and uses his jesterish folly as a mask to give him licence to say all sorts of powerful, painful truths. So then I think he starts to enjoy that idea. And we go into the next stanza, and this is a man celebrating his foolishness. We're almost at the end of the poem, don't panic. Here he goes, the fool now. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Quite a contrast from the uh, formal dress of the office proof rock we, were, we heard about earlier. Shall I part my hair behind? He's back to the hair again. Now he can't get it out of his mind. I'm going to read this to the end of... I'm going to read it to the end of this stanza. This is a short stanza and also has a lovely twist at the end. I grow old, I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. So he decides to be the fool, to let go, to break out of his shell. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. That's the way I'm going. I'll be the fool if that's how people see me. Shall I part my hair behind? Maybe cover that ball patch. Do I dare to eat a peach? Who cares about the mess? Just go for it. I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. So you've got those rhymes there. Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaid singing each to each. And what a mood change that is. He can't be the fool because he's got this deep poetic soul. I have heard the mermaid singing each to each and regular listeners to this podcast will know I love a mermaid reference and I think I once admitted that I still believe they might possibly exist. I know. Next stanza, just one line. Remember, he's just told us that he has heard the mermaid singing each to each. Wow, maybe he really is in tune with the magic of the universe next stanza one line i do not think that they will sing to me there goes all that carefree confidence of the man who uh, wears the bottoms of his trousers rolled and eats a peach i do not think that they will sing to me next stanza just three lines we're nearly at the end this is the penultimate Still of the mermaids, I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back, 
when the wind blows the water white and black. And that repetition there, the way the words only change a bit, I've seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back, when the wind blows the water white and black. And the hair is there again. I think even in this poetry, we're allowed to think white hair, he's worried about getting old and he's still worrying about that ball patch. And that's why this is the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, because even in the most lyrical, beautiful moments, the ordinary keeps creeping in. Nevertheless, I've seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. So he's seen the mermaids with the, the sea, with all its foam and darkness and all its beauty. And then we come to the last stanza, just three lines, and maybe what this poem, why it's the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, as I say, why it's that battle between that inner part of us that reaches for poetry and the world constantly dragging us back down to earth. We have lingered, and I think the we now is all of us. It's the grand we for this last three lines. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea. How fantastic. By sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown. So nearby are these fabulous mermaids wrapped in red and brown seaweed. But let's hear the last line completing the poem. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us. And we drown. And that's what keeps happening to creatives, isn't it? To those who aspire for beauty and art and poetry. Human voices wake us, the world, and we drown. So we were okay. We were okay in the chambers of the sea when we're in our poetic mode. But when human voices wake us from that fabulous dream, we drown we realise that that's not our place. We need to go back to the office. It's a bit like that moment when uh, Jesus walks on the water and Peter goes out to join him and he's walking on the water as well and it's amazing. And then he suddenly thinks, oh, actually, I can't do this. People can't walk on water. And he drops immediately till human voices wake us and we drown, in Peter's case, his own human voice and probably in Proof Rocks 2. That is the love song of J. Alfred Proof Rock. I honestly think it's one of my all-time favourite poems. I love the mix of the ordinary and the marvellous. I love the way Proof Rock shows off and, of course, through him, Elia shows off what a brilliant poet he is with his patient etherized on a table and his snuggling cat and his meandering streets. It's just uh, it's just a beautiful thing. It certainly, uh, when I first read it, disturbed my universe. I hope you liked it 
to. I know what you're thinking. Don't go. Don't go, Frank. You haven't explained um, what the overwhelming question was, which we spoke of um, so early in the poem. Well, I do think that is tied to meaning. I think it is saying don't get too lost in paraphrase when you read a poem. You may know, because I have quoted it before, that T.S. Eliot once said, genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. Genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. And I think what he means is that we should experience, let ourselves experience, the joy, the exhilaration, the intimacy, the excitement of, of a poem and not get bogged down by the uh, the overwhelming question, what does it mean? Obviously, I have explored that to some extent, at least what it means for me. I'd love to know what it means to you guys. And what you should do, of course, is go away, read the whole poem, find your own interpretation, find your own love song in it. And, um, yeah, eat a peach. I mean, you've got wet wipes. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.